0: The summer of 2022, a long, hot summer that brought record-breaking heat, drought, fires, extreme weather events around the country. Labor Day weekend, it was 107 degrees in Redmond, Oregon; 111 in Fresno, California; in Boise, Idaho, 102. Death Valley, well, it set a September record: 127 degrees on September 2nd. It also set a record with a massive downpour on August 5th, and there were one-in-a-thousand-year rain events in. St. Louis, Dallas, Eastern Kentucky. Two, quite a summer. Long Island was spared the record-breaking worst, but it did experience severe drought. And even on a normal day though, surrounded by water subject to severe storms with its forests and farms, beaches and bays, this region is highly sensitive to climate change and all that comes with it. Hello, I'm Frank Sesno. Welcome to Peril and Promise. Climate Change and Eastern Long Island, a WLIW-FM special program. Over the past year, WLIW has held conversations with members of the community to hear what was on people's minds, what they thought we should spend more time exploring and discussing. One of the topics that came up repeatedly was climate change, what it means for this region and what's being done in response. So, here we'll hear from some influential voices from those community discussions, and I'll follow up with a key lawmaker with whom I spoke a year ago for a WLIW special on climate change and the region here. How are we doing? Are there breakthroughs on the horizon as we confront this peril and promise? Major funding for Peril and Promise is provided by Dr. P. Roy Vagelos and Diana T. Vagelos, with additional funding from Sue and Edgar Watkenheim III and the estate of Worthington Mayo Smith. Joining us for this discussion, Suffolk County legislator Al Krupsky, Frank Cavedo, executive director of the South Fork Natural History Museum, community activist Dar Riley, she's co-founder of the Carbon Crew Project and Drawdown East End, and Mark Hobner with the North Fork Environmental Council. Dar, Mark, Frank, welcome to all of you. I, I want to pose this question, and, and Frank, I'll let you kick it off. You know. There is so much else going on in this region that people are worried about, from the cost of living to the availability of housing, traffic, inflation, you name it. You were part of these community conversations. Why do you think it's so important uh, to focus on climate change here? To what end?
1: Well, you know, my, my background and experience as an environmental educator here for almost 30 years is through observation uh, of the natural environment. And in the short period of time that I've been here, living on an island that's surrounded by water, I believe that we should be in great concern of climate change because it can interfere with the aquifer and our drinking water, the crops that we have in our farm fields. The changing environment is allowing various species of animals to naturally expand their life cycles, and most importantly, it's going to interfere with what's evolved here for for thousands of years. So there is a major concern, especially with our drinking water.
0: Dar Riley, how about you?
2: I was born and raised here, and it sure is easy to grow up here and be in love with nature, and also over the course of my 70 years to see those shifts. And to be in love with nature means identifying what's going wrong, and that we want to shift it all so we can have a thriving planet.
3: Mark Hubner? We've already seen about a foot of sea level rise in the Peconic Bioregion, which has slowly impacted our shorelines and wetlands. Like the camel in the tent story, we're not seeing half-inch increments as being any problem, but it all adds up. Second, with so much more heat and water energy in the atmosphere, we should expect our hurricanes to be more severe. Hurricane Sandy was a category one storm, but combined with high tide and full moon and the extra foot of sea level rise, it was devastating. We should be thinking ahead about the next storm.
0: Sure. Frank, I want to come back to, you You mentioned water in your, in your answer a moment ago. Um, parts of Long Island are now joining other major counties, Putnam Dutchess, for example, in what's been labeled severe drought. Long Island's entire South Fork now is in severe drought. Something like half the average rainfall is all since June and people are, directly connecting that to to climate change what does that mean
1: well with you know rising temperatures and and these droughts a lot of times these droughts are conducive to vernal pools drying up which allow amphibians to thrive and and sustain their life cycles when pools dry up because fish cannot sustain themselves in these pools so when there's no fish in these vernal pools that dry up then you have a very productive reproductive uh, season for a lot of the amphibians that live in these vernal pools. But just from my experience in the last 30 years, I've seen eelgrass beds in our marine habitats disappear. And that has a lot to do with warming temperatures. Eelgrass is very susceptible to warming temperatures. They need cool waters in order to thrive. And in just the small amount of time that I've been here on the East End, I've seen eelgrass habitats decline dramatically, almost to the point where
0: they don't exist in. Does drought, along with heat, exacerbate and aggravate that problem? The heat
1: does, not the drought. You know, the heat does. You know, we have trillions and trillions of gallons of fresh water under our feet, and that is the aquifer. That's our drinking water. So when there's a drought, the coastal plain ponds that are connected to the aquifer run a little low, but they will never
0: drain to the point where the water will not be available. Dar Riley, back to you. Your carbon crew project sort of lays things out that people can do at the individual level. And I sort of think of you not only as a community activist, but an individual activist. So what does that look like, what people can do at the individual level? You know, we're powerless individually to do anything about drought. We can't turn the thermostat down, you know, on Long Island. So what about that individual activism?
2: Great question. Um, I think it's really powerful for us to understand that when the UN did their environmental program study on the who's impacting our global emissions, they determined that two thirds of all emissions are determined by choices at the household level. That makes us incredibly powerful. So we're not going to be able to affect the exact drought that's happening, but we can affect the overall events that are happening.
0: So what kinds of things do you tell people that they can or should do individually in this community?
2: What we do is we look at the priorities created by Drawdown, Project Drawdown. They've got 80 solutions that are prioritized by impact. And interestingly enough, one of the most powerful things that can be done is for us to eat all of our food. Isn't that amazing? For us to leave no food scraps. Yes, we want to compost what food scraps they are, but we actually want to eat it all. So we want to take our next steps. What are our next steps? And one thing that we do with Carbon Crew Project is help people figure out what their next steps are.
0: Why is the food thing so important?
2: Because food has pesticides and fertilizers and packaging and transportation and watering. And there is so much effort that goes into creating food um, that is wasted. In the United States, we waste more food than any other country. And a majority of that is wasted at the household level. So we can have a huge impact on that.
0: I wanna ask you one other question about the carbon crew project before moving on. You actually have some goals that you've set, sort of five-year goals for certain things. Would you talk about that? What, what kinds of practical goals when you're thinking about individuals and community and climate change are you talking about?
2: What we do is ask each people over the course of five weeks, to create a personal climate action plan. And they go subject by subject, determining what their next steps can be. And we guide them and encourage them to create a personal climate action plan that will reflect a 50% reduction in their carbon emissions in the next five years. So we guide them to do that by starting and looking at what is their carbon footprint to begin with and what could it be in five years if they executed their
0: own plants. Mark Hubner, over to you in the North Fork Environmental Council. You're also working with with Project Drawdown. I wonder if you could build on on what Dar was talking a little bit in terms of the recommendations that you see as most applicable to eastern Long Island. Um, And I think your focus is largely on the North Fork, if I'm not mistaken.
3: Isn't that right? It is. Thank you, Frank. Um, And what we've started was a food scrap awareness, uh, especially the food waste, as Dar mentioned, It's the biggest uh, lever that we've got as far as impact on carbon emissions, especially with methane and especially with our landfills closing in the next uh, couple of years. So rather than bury it and create methane or lose it as a resource, we are diverting it and capturing it and making compost out of it. And that's our big push for the North Fork, both towns right now, is to get this stuff back into the soils. And I should let you explain that methane is a Really big blue meaning
0: when it comes to climate change, right? I mean, it's more powerful if we can refer to it that way than carbon dioxide. It has a shorter time frame in the atmosphere, so putting it out is more damaging. Curbing it would actually address things more quickly, right?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right, Frank. You've done your homework, thank you. Um, part of the thing is that methane is is not something we see, nor is carbon dioxide. The, the unseen—I don't want to call it an enemy because it's the wrong language—but to, to see. Methane, if it were green outside, would re- really move us to moving more quickly into action, I'm sure. With that said, we're, we're trying to stop burning things as well. The incinerators are taking over in Islip and Hempstead so that rather than burying all of our waste in the landfills, we're looking at burning this all instead. So we'd really, we really need to work on avoiding that. What effect would that have if we end up burning the stuff that we're now burying? I'm seeing lost resources, Frank. I mean, we, we look at, at food as waste or yard waste. And I think the language has to change first. These are organic resources. And we found a way to combine food scraps with yard scraps in a ratio of about three or four to one and make high quality compost, which could be used all over the place, either in your yard, on our, our town properties, on farms. It's just an incredible resource that we're throwing away.
0: Frank, I want to come back to you're a biologist with a marine biology background. So you're all over the water in and around it, I guess. You mentioned the eelgrass a moment ago, but I know you've also been tracking things like bird migration, and you've been looking at the bunker fishing and some of these issues. What else do you see as very much kind of, you know, on the bubble, if we can call it that, uh, with respect to our wildlife in eastern Long Island and climate change?
1: With the you know rising temperatures uh, locally, we're starting to see adaptations of animals that are from the southern parts of our country move to this environment and displacing and decimating habitat.
0: That's actually changing and happening as a result of climate change. We're seeing it. Yeah. I, yes, we're seeing it. So, it's, And I'll give you some
1: examples. The southern pine beetle, uh, it's called southern because it, it, it lives in the southern states of this country, has come up. The, and it's a natural expansion of wildlife. All wildlife looks to expand in a northerly direction to, out, to get away from the competition or to adapt to new environmental situations. So the southern pine beetle has come and is now decimating our pitch pine trees which are, you know, killing them in in tremendous numbers. So, you know, thousands and thousands of, uh, you know, trees each year are dying. You can see that if you go to Barcelona, Neck and Sag Harbor, or if you go to Hampton Bays to Red Creek Park, you'll notice a lot of our pitch pine trees are dead. And that's because of the southern pine beetle. Uh, We're also seeing southern flying squirrels adapt to this environment. Uh, These southern flying squirrels come and they eat young nesting birds. So we're seeing a displacement of our native wildlife. We're also starting to see, believe it or not, I don't know if it's been out here yet on the east end, as far east, but we're starting to see spotted lanternflies uh, arrive on Long Island. And that can decimate a lot of our oak trees out here. So everything is connected. So if if these animals are coming up and decimating habitat, you're going to lose ground nesting birds. You're going to be losing cavity nesting birds. You're going to be losing a lot of habitat that other animals rely on because of these climate change impacts.
0: Are we also seeing changes in the water and, and some, you know, marine animals and mammals because of this? Like-
1: yeah. So, you know, in the last 30 years, there's been a lot of conservation efforts in protecting the Atlantic menhaden, which has been referred to as the most important fish in the ocean. Everything eats Atlantic menhaden, also known as bunker. So when the bunker is protected, that brings everything in the marine life that eats it back into our environment. So we're seeing more whales, more dolphins, more ospreys. Eagles are starting to restore nesting sites here online. They all eat Atlantic menhaden, And we're also seeing a lot more sharks in our waters because of the Atlantic menhaden is a food source for them. But with warming climate. We're also seeing species such as spinner sharks and blacktip sharks that usually live in southern waters in warmer temperatures come up here in the summer months, and they're interacting with with people and other shark populations here in our waters because of the climate change.
0: So we see all these effects of climate change. We've talked about several of them here in terms of temperature. We mentioned drought, uh, impact on wildlife, trees, and things like that. So now let's turn for a minute to what we can do about it. And and Mark, let me come over to you when you look around at what's being done. I mean, one of the big things, and I'll talk to Al Krupsky about this big, huge project that a lot of people are pointing to very proudly are the offshore wind turbines, offshore offshore wind farm and trying to move toward a clean energy future. From your perspective, what are the most important things that we can be doing regionally? And are we doing them to address this problem?
3: Yeah, thanks Frank on that. The we are working with the the committees, the sustainability committees of the five towns right now to integrate our efforts and expand our reach to larger numbers of the general public. We've also taken on the taken on the role of educating not just the public through working closely with our civic associations, but especially with our elected representatives, give them the best science out there. Peconic Estuary Partnership, Long Island Sound Study, Cornell, the rest, and especially the the priorities of Project Drawdown, which has measured, mapped, and modeled all of these solutions available to everyone at every level right now. And I just want to say that the most impactful efforts will come from our citizens, our businesses, and our governments to work as a consortium to include their own interests at the table and for us all to benefit from a platform of cooperation and collaboration, just as our planet has been doing for the last two billion years.
0: Yeah, are we doing that though?
3: I believe we are.
0: You see that consortium, you see that energy, let's hope it's renewable, coming together around this? I do, and this is my
3: main purpose in life right now is to make that happen, yes.
0: Dar, coming over to you then, as you think about the solutions, the things that we need to do and how quickly we need to move, how do you chart out the priorities?
2: Well, when we're talking specifically uh, about ecosystems, it it seems to me that everybody can really benefit knowing about the perfect earth project that Edwina van Gaal has created, also two-thirds for the birds. And that's in, as we plant more native plants, we create those ecosystems and support for the pollinators and the whole um, thriving world out there. So that's really important. The other thing, of course, I would say is join a crew. And learn all these prioritized things that you're going to want to be doing as your next step.
0: You work with a ton of of organizations and civic groups in Suffolk County, whether it's League of Women Voters or others. What what are you agitating for them to do? What do you want them all to do about this?
2: Well, uh, that's a super question, too. And that is, for example, with League of Women Voters, we're working with them to bring crew in particular to all of their groups in Long Island so that they will also bring it to their communities on Long Island. And then we can look at all of our projects together and feel the momentum and also work within our communities um, lobbying the towns and the villages and the counties as we need to as a group.
0: And what do you want the towns and the villages, the elected officials, the public officials to be doing now? What should their climate change priority be?
2: Well, one of the they should really work on the built environment. For example, they should require that all buildings are electrified. That would just make a huge difference. We also want to create stringent building codes for the sustainable demolition of homes. We've got so much demolition happening out here, but it's not being done in a sustainable way, which leads to promoting a reuse program. We should follow what Ithaca is doing with their Ithaca reuse program. So these things can come back into action that have been decimated. And um, we should promote more walkable and bicycle communities throughout. So those are just a few of the things. Um, We should also pay a big attention to whether our elected officials are doing these things or not. These communities out here, if you're here, have all signed up to be sustainable by 2040. Are they acting on it? We need to be an engaged public to make sure they're acting on it. And if they're not, we need to bring in new people, vote the old ones out and vote new ones in.
0: Frank Caveto, your South Fork Natural History Museum is all about sort of triggering, stimulating interest and knowledge about our natural environment. So I know that's, that's where you work. And you have a great line that I just love. Uh, I've heard you say, you can't protect what you don't know. What do you want people to know? What do you spend your time? If you think about how do we make a difference in this community, what do people need to know?
1: Well, we've been a a nonprofit educational, nature education organization for 33 years. And how we fulfill our mission is getting people outdoors, up close, firsthand encounters with our natural environment, right here on the South Fork. There is no other way in teaching children and adults about the sensitivity of our natural environment unless they're actually up close and touching something and seeing something firsthand. That's what we've been doing. That is the mission of our museum, is to get people outdoors and interact with our natural environment so they know what, what they're gonna protect in the future. That is, that is the mission of our museum.
0: Before we conclude our conversation, here, I'd like to ask all of you to take out your scorecard. I'm gonna sort of look down the line one, three, five years. And, and and think of it this way, okay? You know, the governor has spoken about putting, you know, tons more money into 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 climate change and fighting climate change across New York. Uh, the president of the United States, and uh, at least the Democrats in Congress, whatever you think of it, they passed the legislation, and there's going to be. Billions more that's being directed in this space. Private sector is moving on its own, whether it's uh, electrified electric vehicles or offshore wind. If people are as worried as we know they all are about climate change, but they've got this scorecard to see, are we making progress? What do each of you think that over the next one to five years, we need to see from these elected officials and in our region, if we can actually see progress? Mark, you want to start?
3: Yeah, Frank, the um, The goalpost is is really in, in our book is 2030. So five years out is going to be more of a milestone. We've already benchmarked our greenhouse gas emissions for the town as part of the NYSERDA program and Climate Smart Communities uh, for the DEC. So we know where we are. And the numbers of 50% per decade is probably not realistic because we haven't started yet. So I think we're behind the eight ball as far as the the movement is concerned. And the group of us here today certainly know where we have to be, where we have to end up, which gives us actual outcomes, it gives us goals, and it gives us metrics in order to measure these. And we're looking at those every single day. Dar Riley, to you.
2: Well, I'm taking the question away. I'm taking it away from the government. I'm bringing it to me. And that is the change we need to see is... To recognize the power of me, I make all the difference. The people on this call, you are the early adopters. And if you get engaged now, that's going to make all the difference in five years.
1: Frank Cavedo, For me, it's, all, it's education. Make people aware of what's happening in their own backyard here in a local level, more than a global level. It starts locally. And when you start locally, you can start building from that and then reaching a different aspect and making climate change disappear. This is something that is dear to my heart, and that's education and getting the children involved as much as possible.
0: Well, Frank Caveto and Mark Hobner and Dar Riley, I, I want to thank you for your, your thoughts and your comments here, for your uh, community engagement and for your passion around climate change and the place we live in, and making this a better planet. Thanks to you all for your time. Turning now to Al Krupsky, Suffolk County Legislator. Al, thanks very much for spending some time with us.
4: Well, this is an important topic, Frank. Thanks for uh, discussing it. You bet. Well,
0: I want to start by uh, getting your response to some of the things we just heard from our uh, citizen activist panel. You know, One of the things that came through from that conversation loud and clear was the need for more urgency and awareness to educate and engage citizens and to confront climate change. What's your response to that? And where does that fit into your priorities?
4: Oh, gosh, I find that very encouraging. You know, as an elected official... For, uh, for many years, you, you only you really only know what you know. and the more you do outreach, the more you hear from people, you know the better educated you are and, and the, the better decisions you can make going forward. So hearing from um, you know from citizens is is really critical because there are a lot of smart people out there and um, they have a lot of good ideas.
0: What are you doing to better educate and better engage citizens?
4: I, I meet on a regular basis with civics, uh, with chambers, uh, with different, you know, homeowners associations, and um, just, to, just to listen to what people have to say. But on the subject of climate change? Oh, it comes up on a, on a you know, on a regular basis. But no, on, on everything. But climate change is something that um, is very important. I also work with different levels of government, you know, of course, on this. But as far as people outside of government, you know, their understanding of it and their concerns are really critical to making better decisions.
0: What we heard from the um, panel was some really key things that they felt needed to be priorities, some of which are part of the Project Drawdown horizon. Uh, the need to cut down on food waste because of the methane that's created from landfills. The need to burn less as landfills get shut down. The need for more efficient buildings, more bikeable and walkable communities. What do you say to that, and how do those priorities map onto your priorities from the county level?
4: So absolutely to all those things, and I'm very familiar with the work that Drawdown is doing, and I have to applaud them for uh, helping to engage government in the solutions. I mean, the problem is that these are all kind of long-term solutions to an immediate problem. So if you look at the work they're doing with food waste recycling and food waste, instead of just shipping it off the island. So that is a great goal. And I met with them, I would it had to be pre-pandemic because the we had DEC in the office here also to try to come up with a pilot program in South Old Town. And I could only encourage the drawdown members and South Old Town to engage in this pilot because the you know the high percentage of waste our waste stream that is food waste should not be shipped off the island. It should be used and composted here and reused and put back into our ecosystem so that we don't lose that organic matter that's beneficial to for for crop production on the farms, but also not to truck all that waste off the island and cause a different problem somewhere else because who now someone's getting our garbage.
0: You and I spoke a, a year ago for a special Parallel and Promise Program, talking about climate change in Eastern Long Island. In that year, Al, whether it's landfills or food waste or offshore wind or money appropriated, a lot has happened. What's the most significant thing, if there is something that's really significant in your view, that's changed since we spoke last year?
4: Well, it goes, a couple things, if I could, you you know, you mentioned the offshore wind. So that is, um, and I've been to many offshore wind meetings in the last decade. But they're they're finally getting, um, I think, a lot closer. And it's such a complicated process, and that's the problem with some of these changes. They're so complicated, and there's so many regulatory partners. Just to put a wind turbine out in the ocean involves a great deal of um, you know careful, insightful study, which it should, to see what the impacts to the environment are going to be. But the whole purpose there, I think, is to is offset immediate impacts by a more of a global impact to try to mitigate. And so what the county did is we authorized the use of the county park land to run the cables underneath, because you have to land these cables somewhere to transfer the power uh, upland, where then, you know, it becomes the limitations of the grid to and working with the utility to try to, uh, to distribute that power. So it gives us an opportunity to more, be more energy independent as a community, certainly, and as a country. To produce our own energy and so we had to be you know we had to be partners in that to um to allow for the use of county parkland to to, um to site those cables and to land those cables
0: ground has been broken on this project when will we start seeing power generated and is this the beginning of a a movement along the, the the south fork for more uh wind and more renewable
4: energy i think it's a coordinated effort as far as this goes, because some of the meetings that I've been in, you know, the complicating factor is where those cables land and how much energy the, the grid can move around and how much the utility can move around. So it's the distribution of that power once it gets to land. You know, our role as a county was was mainly to enable it by allowing for the use of county property to land those cables where they could be most efficiently distributed.
0: The governor, when she was there for the groundbreaking said that she's looking forward to this powering nearly 3 million New York homes, which would be about half of the state's goal for 2035 to power homes with, with this sort of thing. Is this enough? I mean, that's a lot of homes, but there are a lot more homes.
4: No, and I think it's. I think there's a limit to how much area they've authorized so far offshore to where they can place the wind turbines. And again, it's a limit to where they they can actually move the energy. So I think it's going to have to be to, to meet the whole state's need for renewable energy, they're going to have to come up with other, you know, big, bigger, you know, obviously solar farms are really big here on the East End, especially in the Riverhead area. And I think that's going to have to be something that's looked into also.
0: Okay, so that's, I mentioned the governor, now let's go to, to Washington and talk about the president because the president mm-hmm. signed the mm-hmm. bill that's putting billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars really into a variety of things, including mm-hmm. uh, renewable energy. Are we going to see, do you think, as a result of all of this, very rapid change in Suffolk County, pushing for more EV charging stations, more mm-hmm. renewable energy, more solar panels on rooftops? What's in the
4: in the wind, if I can use that term
0: here, sure, <laughs> as a result sure. of this?
4: Sure. So while the county is probably not building too many new buildings, anything that's built, there's a concern that it should be capable of holding solar panels and it should have the, cap- the wiring capable of transferring that energy that's produced. As far as building efficiency, the county has a very good record of retrofitting buildings to be more energy efficient, because that's the start, right? If you're using 100 units of energy a day, you know, if you can cut that use back, we should all start from that. What's the least amount of energy we should use, not let's use as much as we want and just keep trying to produce up to that number? So what are some
0: of the building projects you're talking about? What's actually happening and what's going to change as a result?
4: Well, over the years, we've made a tremendous investment in energy uh, retrofit projects in county buildings. Uh, a lot of it has to do with lighting because that's the low-hanging fruit where you get your, your biggest bang for your buck as far as energy efficiency. So indoor and outdoor lighting, transferring like on this building here at 423 Griffin, putting new um, mechanicals on the roof for heating and cooling. So all those investments in energy efficiency, they pay off really long term because what they tend to do is bundle these projects so that they will pay for themselves over time and you get, you know, usually a three to five year payback. Some, of course, are longer, but that's why they bundle them together to, to try to try to get as much as they can. And a lot of it, like I said, is long term savings. That's why I think we should be looking at, at homeowners also to look for energy efficient everything to try to cut down the demand and cut on on the whole system so that as we produce more energy, there's more there's more room in the grid, more flexibility with the utility to move everything around from wherever it's produced.
0: So that's exactly what I want to ask you about, too, is uh, homeowners in Suffolk County. One of the things Dar Riley talked about is the, um, the need for citizens to do what they can. In July, Governor Hochul signed legislation to lower carbon emissions from buildings um, as part of her move to address climate change. And part of this is to make, you know, bring more energy efficiency to homes. So does that legislation provide more money, more support? What should homeowners in Suffolk County know about what's available to them if they want to make their homes more energy efficient?
4: Yeah, I'm not sure what what the governor's proposal speaks to specifically for homeowners, but I think that's a great step in that it's, it's you got to encourage people to make those changes, you know, and it it comes down, and I've seen it throughout my whole life, and I'm sure you see it too, Frank. Everyone's busy, and everyone's got their own lives, and their own things that are going on in their own lives, and so you really have to make it make it important to people to make a change. I'm going to invest in solar panels on my roof. I'm going to buy a new uh, hot water heater. I'm um, you know upgrade that. There's a lot of little things you can do in your home. And what people don't realize, a lot of what happens doesn't, you don't see an instant result, but they're incremental and they build upon one another.
0: I want to ask you about something else that uh, has taken place that's in the year since we spoke. In March, the county earmarked about a million dollars to look at coastal resiliency and what can be done with respect to climate change and
4: coastal erosion and what's all going on there. What's happening with that? All right. So I did ask for an update like a month or so ago on that, and the consultant is still working on it. We had one big meeting. It was a, a very inclusive meeting, uh, you know, with, including other levels of government, starting from the Army Corps of Engineers to New York State DEC, to the different towns and villages. And it also included uh, people like the Peconic Estuary Partnership. So you wanted to be as inclusive in, as possible to get as much input. And they're working on looking at the county infrastructure to see as sea level rises, what really has to be addressed first, having a long-term plan because you just can't put a Band-Aid on so, and spend all of your resources and time on one thing when really there's something much bigger and more complicated that should be worked on immediately. So it's just sort of prioritize the way government acts short and long-term. Yes, so a, a report is
0: forthcoming. And just to be clear for everybody, what this task force is trying to do is to identify how frequent flooding, heavier rains, storm surges could impact everything from homes to
4: roads to stormwater systems, right? Exactly, exactly. And you talk about stormwater systems. So the county DPW, New York State DOT and a lot of the municipalities have done a great job as far as working on drainage codes and working on their on their drainage so we don't lose that rainwater into the uh, surface waters. That we recharge our aquifer with every drop of rain that we get, and you know, you, you mentioned the drought and how dry it was locally this summer. We work on a very small uh, aquifer here, surrounded by salt water. So as sea level rises, that salt water bubbles floating on on the seawater because the seawater, the salt water is denser. So we need to keep recharging our aquifer every time it rains to make sure that we that aquifer gets, uh, it's like a bank. You have to keep adding to it. We can't just keep drawing out of it.
0: Al, I, I know that uh, you're very focused on on this and these priorities that come from this. You spoke at the at the outset about citizen engagement. Are there ways for citizens to uh, participate in this task force or provide input if they have something they would like to report or be part of this somehow?
4: Yes, when we get the report, we'll, we'll send it out to all the municipalities and we'll distribute it to... Uh, to as many people as we can, because that kind of input is is really critical. The general large goal, I think is is pretty consistent, but to fine tune and refine some of the suggestions would, you know, that's when you need uh, public input and peop- other people to look at it and uh, to offer their insight.
0: While we're on the subject of rain and coastal erosion and all the rest, this summer, I know there were literally hundreds of beach closures on Long Island. And the closures aren't because of climate change per se, but as you've explained, there's a connection to development, drainage, stormwater runoff with all of this stuff. But, but what does happen as climate change brings more rain, more extreme weather and, and more violent runoff as a result?
4: Sure, so the beach closures are a result of pathogen um, contamination and bacteria contamination. Sometimes from failing septic systems, but most of the time it's from, uh, you get a heavy rain and it flushes all the adjacent properties into the adjacent roadways, and then all that waste gets gets flushed right into your surface water, and that's what causes your beach closures. So if you do have, you do work on your drainage and make that investment. The the dual goal, besides recharging the aquifer with that, you know, it's it's all rain, free rainwater, is that you clean, you can clean that rainwater, and it doesn't enter your surface water and contaminate that.
0: So what's being what's being done to, to address that and to address the growing threat because climate change is going to aggravate some of these things?
4: It's just it's just an investment. And I had that conversation with the director of Cornell Cooperative Extension yesterday, trying to engage all the right people in the towns, in the villages. Uh, the county DPW plays a, a big role there uh, because there's so many county roads that connect with town roads. And the county also funds a lot of infrastructure projects. And there were two road runoff projects built in Greenport Village a couple of years ago. The county partnered with a village to pay for them. And, you know, Greenport Harbor is a very important harbor, not only for boating, it's also important for fishing and commercial aquaculture. There's two commercial aquaculture operations there. It's critical not only for the environment, but also for the economy to have clean surface water, because that that is a huge part of our economy.
0: But how close are you to the sufficient level of investment and activity to address these problems and, you know, be able to control this problem? So
4: that's a cultural um, issue. And I think that that's why the citizens' engagement is critical to put pressure on their elected officials to say, look, we want to be able to go to the beach in the summer every day and swim. We want to be able to have shellfishing opportunities, whether they're recreational or commercial, uh, in the waters adjacent to our our communities and it'll help put pressure on the municipalities to do their work make the investments in drainage that over time are going are gonna benefit you know everyone in those communities
0: I think I hear you saying if your beach has been closed call your local elected official and tell them to to work on this and make the investments and figure out what the problem is ask for demand answers and action
4: that's exactly it that's exactly it because all it takes is is the hard work. Of doing your your watershed studies, mapping your outfalls, and then attacking them one at a time, so that you don't have those outfalls um, draining your 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 stormwater into your creeks and bays.
0: What's uh, going on on the food front these days? I know this is another area where you're you're, you're a farmer yourself, and um, you're very concerned about food, food production, climate change, uh, and Long Island. What are you focused on in that regard these days?
4: Well, uh, Cornell Cooperative Extension has been concerned about climate change for a number of years. And as as the climate warms, they can see different species shifting their ranges. And so you see it in the natural world with different birds and insects. So if you see it with insects, that's going to affect agriculture. If you see it with rainfall events and droughts, it's going to affect agriculture and food production. And, and then if you see it from a uh, Less negative light, as the climate changes, you can you can raise a greater diversity of crops because your winters aren't as severe, and so there's a lot of discussion in the agricultural community now on how to adjust to climate change. Cornell Cooperative Extension runs the Long Island Ag Forum every year, every January, and that's going to be one of the hot topics of um, you know how to make adjustments. I, and I know that. That Cornell University has been very concerned about this for over a decade. Um, concerned about rainfall events, which if it's really dry, it's really difficult to grow anything as we found out this summer. But if it's really wet, it's almost impossible and it could be way worse.
0: Al, I want to conclude with a two-part question for you here. We spoke a year ago. Since then, we've seen some progress, as you've mentioned. We've also seen more heat records around the country and drought in Long Island. So we're reminded that this is a clear and present danger, this idea of climate change. It's not some theoretical thing. So what is your biggest concern for the area regarding climate change and what it's bringing in the, in the medium term? And, and, and what more needs to happen? What should people see if this region is serious
4: about dealing with it? I guess what, what needs to be done is, is the elected officials have to focus on this. As elected officials, there's a lot, of course, there's a lot of distractions And government provides a lot of resources in a lot of different areas to people's lives. And it provides a lot of services. The climate change issue affects people's, one, quality of life, if you do have beach closures and closures of shellfish beds, but it also there's a big public safety aspect to it if roads flood on sunny days, uh, let alone if you have big coastal storms that really will close down your community for a number of days, um, including, of course, power outages for a long time. So I think people have to be conscious of the fact that we do need to invest in renewable energy and that that means seeing windmills. Somehow it's an inconvenience from some people to see a windmill or to see where the energy is produced. That means, you know, increased uh, use of solar to generate electricity. So the community has to get used to the idea of being more energy independent, which means investing either from the government side, but also investing personally in their own homes in energy efficiency. Lots to do,
0: but some progress and some hope as we're reminded just how serious and how real this, uh, this crisis really is. Al Krupski, thank you so much for your
4: time. Well, thank you for doing this because this really does help raise the awareness and that's what is really important. So thank you, Frank.
0: And thanks to all of our guests, Suffolk County Legislator Al Krupski, Mark Hobner, Dar Riley, and Frank Cavado peril and promise a public media initiative from the wnet group reporting on the human stories of climate change and its solutions you can learn more at pbs.org slash peril and promise major funding for peril and promise is provided by dr p roy vagelos and diana t vagelos with additional funding from sue and edgar watkenheim III, and the estate of worthington mayo smith thanks very much for listening i'm frank sesno